Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As always, it's a joy to turn to God's Word together, and we're back in 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4 this morning. And if you have been following along, you know that uh, last week we ended what was really the first section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And so this morning we're beginning the second section. And in the first part, Paul was really highlighting uh, his joy and his thanksgiving over the genuine faith of the Thessalonian Christians. And uh, at the end of that section, in in chapter 3, verse 10, that we covered last week, Paul had prayed that he might uh, be able to see the Thessalonians face-to-face and supply what is lacking in their faith. And it seems as we move to the second part of the letter here that that's what Paul is doing, that he is trying to address areas both of doctrine and their understanding of Christ, as well as of ethics or their, of their life in following Christ that maybe we're lacking uh, in their lives. And as we'll see, the areas that Paul addresses for the Thessalonian believers are, are also areas that are very pertinent to our lives here in the 21st century. So if you'd turn with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, note that my goal is to really address the main theme of this passage, which is really focused on in verses 1 through 3, and we'll double back to more of the details next week. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these words that you have inspired. I pray that you would continue to work in them, through them, in our lives this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen. My guess is that many of us who live in this area of Pennsylvania have likely been to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and if you've been to Hershey, Pennsylvania, you may well have been to the Hershey Chocolate World. And despite my now infamous dislike of chocolate, I have enjoyed my visit to Hershey Chocolate World. I think uh, uh, I've uh, enjoyed all sorts of things there, but particularly the ride. Uh, if you've ever been there and, and been on the ride, you, you, you get on a, a little moving ride that takes you through the jungle. It sort of traces where chocolate comes from. You go through the jungle and you pass some singing cows uh, that emphasize the, the milk aspect and into the factory. Uh, it's an enjoyable ride, but of course, for me, the best thing about it is it's free. 
It doesn't get much better than that. But uh, I realized, of course, that everything I've done at the Hershey Chocolate Factory is free. But that doesn't mean that everything you can do there is free. In fact, there's a number of optional sort of deluxe packages. You can, you can see a 4D movie on chocolate. You can take a, cho- a trolley ride. You can make your own candy bar. Uh, you can take a tour, a, to- a chocolate tasting tour. And in fact, you can do all of these for a mere $47 per adult and $40 per child. Welcome to the world of free basic visits and quite expensive extra packages. Now, unfortunately, as uh, PCA pastor Kevin DeYoung has argued in his book, The Whole and Our Holiness, it seems to be the case that many in the church have taken this same approach to Christianity, where there can be sort of like the basic Christianity that, that everyone uh, believes in. You know, believe in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. But then there's the sort of optional extra for those who really want to be godly. You know, those, those who really want to pursue holiness and godliness, that's sort of like the, the extra level of spirituality. Or maybe to put it uh, another way, the Bible clearly states, these uh, some would say, that we cannot earn our salvation by our good works, and we agree with that. But in our desire to emphasize that we're saved by grace alone, it can become all too easy to slip into the idea that you know, we should try to please God as a thank you for what he's done, but there's no real obligation for obedience. After all, Jesus has died for our sins. That can be a slippery slope because this is not how scripture speaks. It doesn't match God's will and God's call for our life. And that's the main point of our text this morning. The main point of our text, Paul states repeatedly in these verses that if you are a follower of Jesus, God's will for your life is your holiness, your sanctification. You know, sanctification is a word that that describes God's gracious work in our lives to make us holy or to make us pure and righteous in his sight. And I think as we follow this passage, there are four things that Paul tells us about our call to sanctification, about God's work to make us holy. And I want to start with the first point, which is the main point of this passage, and it's all over this passage. And the main point is this, the priority of a Christian's holiness. If you walk through Paul's language, you can see the priority of our holiness all through this passage. It starts in verse 1. Verse 1 literally reads that the Thessalonians have received from us how it is necessary for you to walk and to please God. Verse 2 Paul says that this call to holiness is not his words or his desires. It's the instructions that he gives through the Lord Jesus himself. And verse 3 summarizes this by saying, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Later in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And he ends by saying, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God himself, who has given us the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's common for people to ask, what is God's will for my life? And usually when we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? We want to know what's coming next for me. You know, which college should I choose? Or should I retire now or wait three more years for maximum social security benefits or, or something along those lines? But when scripture talks about God's will for our life, when God's word talks about knowing God's will for our life, it does so in moral terms. 
God's will for my life and your life is our holiness, our obedience to God's commands. And I think if you think back through Scripture, you can see this theme, this priority and urgency that God places on our holiness. It should be no surprise. It's all through Scripture. Ever since the day that Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God, God's goal has been to redeem a people for himself that he would purify again in holiness, who would dwell with him forever. That's why God's covenant with his people, while always providing for the forgiveness of sins, and that is an important doctrine that nothing we say this morning uh, overrides. While God has always provided for the forgiveness of sins, he has also always emphasized the necessity of our holiness. It began right at the beginning. Think back to Genesis when God first made a covenant with Abraham. His opening words when he called Abraham, he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Fast forward to Exodus 19. God calls Israel out of Egypt. He, he carries them out of Egypt on eagle's wings. And then in Exodus 19, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Or consider Psalm 15. Psalm 15 asks this question, who will dwell on my holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Again and again, God calls his people to holiness and to obedience as his will for him. Now we might pause here and say, well, yes, but this was the Old Testament. Wasn't the whole point that Israel couldn't do this. They couldn't keep God's law, and so God sent Jesus to fulfill it for us. And yes, that is true. But listen to what the Old Testament says when it looks ahead to what Jesus would do. When it looks to this new covenant Jesus would make with us, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it. I will write my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the goal in sending Jesus was not to make obedience unnecessary, but to put God's Spirit in us, to remake us in the image of Christ so that obedience would be possible. In fact, if you were to ask the question, I wonder if some of you have asked this question before, why did God send Jesus to save me? What was his goal in doing that? What was his purpose? And if you want to answer that question, there are several answers that might be given. Maybe you would think of John 3.16, because God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to die for us and rescue us. His love for us maybe was the reason why he did it. Or maybe you think of, of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12, and you might answer, for the praise of his own name and his glory. Ephesians 1.12 says that he rescued us for the praise of his own name. And those are good and true answers. But one of the most frequently given answers in Scripture for why Jesus hung on the cross for us, what Jesus was aiming for in our redemption, is that we might be holy and blameless. Think of Ephesians 1.4. He, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Titus 2, 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Or Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, over and over, we could keep going. The, God's purpose, God's goal, God's desire, Christ's goal, and hanging on the cross for us was to save us that we might be holy and blameless and might be zealous for the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And so when we review scripture like this, it should be no surprise to us that we arrive at 1 Thessalonians 4 and hear this is God's will for you, your sanctification or your growth in holiness. And of course, there are important biblical truths that accompany this call to holiness that we shouldn't forget, right? We know these. Our sinful flesh still pulls at us. So we know from scripture that we will not be perfect in holiness until the day that we stand before the Lord. And that's why repentance is part of the regular rhythm of the Christian life. We know that it is God's grace alone, received through faith alone, accomplished in Christ alone, that we are able to act in a way that would honor Christ. We have no ability to act with holiness apart from his grace. Those are important theological truths. But my job as a preacher is not only to explain the text, the, the, the meaning of the text before us, but also to communicate its tone and its emphasis. And the clear emphasis of the passage this morning is that the Lord calls us to the joyful duty of holiness. That is God's will for us, and it is his great priority in our lives. And I think maybe the question for you and I as we read this passage this morning is this, do, do we, do we long for and strive for our holiness with the same urgency and same priority that God does? And, and maybe we could ask practically, if holiness is a priority for us as it is a priority for God, what specific efforts are you and I making right now to grow in godliness, to say no to sin and yes to obedience? As I was thinking about this, this, this effort and growth and holiness, this priority on holiness, I was reminded of one of the questions that Westminster asked on their application for the senior pastor job. One of the first questions after listing uh, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and a list of godly virtues that should be true of Christian leaders, the application asked, which of these areas require special effort on your part? And I love that question because it's asking us to do two things. First, it was asking me to, to know and to name the areas where my sin most greatly tugs at me. But then it was asking me to specifically name what efforts do I go to to say no to those areas of sin and pursue righteousness and godliness. And I wonder if each one of us this morning would consider that question. What areas of godly virtue require most effort on our part? Can we name those areas? And can we list the efforts that we are taking to say no to sin and yes to godliness? 
All of this reflects the priority of holiness. And the priority of holiness for each believer is, is the main overarching point in this passage. And it's the first point Paul makes about our sanctification. But secondly, this, this, this passage tells us more about the process of sanctification. The second thing Paul shares is the core principle of Christian holiness, and he does so right in verse 1. The core principle is this. If we ask, what is it that motivates us to obey God and his commandments? What drives our growth in righteousness? What guides and determines how we act in life? And according to Paul, it's our desire to please God. See verse 1, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. It's this desire to please God that drives our obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says the same thing. He puts it this way there. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That is the driving principle of our holiness. I think we can put it this way. The mark of a true Christian is not mere conformity to religious rules. That's legalism. The mark of true Christianity is a love for God, a relationship with him that leads us to desire to obey him in godliness. I think we can think about this in, in the sense of a marriage, right? If, if, if you were thinking of your marriage, how many of you would consider your marriage to be well-grounded in love if your spouse had no desire to be with you or to please you, but out of a perfunctory sense of duty bought you flowers on every anniversary and birthday and watched the kids when it was his turn because it was his duty to do so? Is that a good marriage? No, of course not. Because it's rooted in a, in a love for one another. You know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned the early American preacher Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is well-known, perhaps, for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But one of his equally well-known works is entitled, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. Jonathan Edwards was someone who was passionately in love with Jesus. And his thesis in this essay is this. He says, The surest way to tell if someone was a true believer or not is whether their life shows a deep love for Christ and a clear joy in Christ. That is the defining mark of true Christianity or a mere false formality of Christianity. He he puts it this way. He said, this life would be evidenced in longings to please Christ, obey Christ, and delight in him. He says, holy desire exercised in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness is often mentioned in scripture as the important part of true religion. What is it that marks a true believer? Someone with a clear love for Christ and joy in Christ, who has a hungering and longing for holiness to honor Christ, because the core principle of sanctification is our desire to please God. I wonder if this language echoes with our hearts. If not, would we draw near to Christ and renew our vision of his beauty and glory and what he has done for us so that we might renew our love for him and our desire to honor and obey him? That's the second thing Paul tells us in this passage about sanctification. But third, the third thing that Paul tells us is also found in verse 1, and I wonder if I could introduce it this way. As we, as we hear Paul talk about the priority of holiness and, and, and this principle of holiness to please God, maybe this causes some dismay in our hearts. Maybe you and I know our weakness. We know our tendency to sin. 
we know how easy it is to give in to our flesh and we wonder, how is this type of holiness even possible for me? And while some of us need Paul's strong prod to place a renewed priority on holiness, and that's the main theme of this passage, others of us desire holiness and are striving for it, but are so aware of how far we fall short still. We look at ourselves and can be discouraged at how much our sinful flesh is flailing at us. And I think Paul's next few points will offer encouragement to us for those of us who do desire holiness. Because the third point that Paul makes is he lays out in verse 1 the pattern of our sanctification. You see how he says in verse 1, he says, we should walk and please God. Then he says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And Paul here lays out the pattern of sanctification, that it is one that we continue to increase in, that we continue to grow in more and more each day of our lives until we die. Paul's uh, encouragement here matches what Scripture says elsewhere about our growth in obedience to God. Maybe you think of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the saints should minister to one another for the building up of the body until we attain mature manhood and the fullness of stature in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you think of, of Philippians 3 verses 12 to 14 where Paul reflects on his own growth and holiness. And he says, he is not yet perfect But forgetting what is behind, he presses on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So all through the New Testament, there's this pattern that sanctification grows and increases. It recognizes we're not yet perfect, but calls on us to pursue this pattern. In other words, when we put our faith in Christ, when we put our faith in him, we are called out of sin and the world into obedience to Christ. But our lives are still a constant process of putting off sin and putting on godliness and obedience to him. And while it is God's grace in the work of his spirit alone that enable us to deny sin and pursue holiness, we're still very much part of that, of that effort. And I think in the case of any hard effort, it's helpful to know the goal you're working towards and proper expectations for what it's going to look like to get there. Maybe you know that if you're studying for an exam. If it's going to be a difficult exam to study for, you need to know the goal and have an expectation of how long it's going to take you to get there. For myself, I'm uh, not a very overly handy guy, but I have done some home improvement projects, taken out a wall in my kitchen and and finished uh, part of my basement. And I've learned, if I've learned anything from my home improvement projects, I need to know the goal, what I'm going to get to, and I need to know an expectation of how long it's going to get there. And what I've learned is my expectation needs to be not just how long is it going to take me to get the job done, but how long is it going to take me to undo and redo all the things I do wrong along the way. That's what keeps me going in the process. And I think in our sanctification, we also need to know the goal and have a proper expectation of how we're going to get there. And the goal, according to Scripture, is nothing less than the complete conformity of our life to the likeness and holiness of Christ. As God says, be holy as I am holy. And God guarantees us that he will bring us to that goal by the time we stand before Jesus Christ on the last day. But the process, the process of getting there will be a lifelong pattern of daily efforts to kill sin and to put on and act with greater obedience out of a desire to please God. Theologian John Murray put it this way. He said, the believer needs to be actively engaged in the business 
of the slaughterhouse with respect to his own sin. A great way to put it, isn't it? And I think as I've reflected on this in my own life, one of my greatest encouragements and progress in and holiness comes when I wake up in the morning and can say, today there will be temptations. My flesh and Satan will be active in me today. But I'm watching for those temptations. I know the areas of my heart that are most likely to trip me up. And I'm ready to fight with all of my strength to kill my sin and to act with greater and greater obedience for the sake of my Savior who died for me. When that's our expectation at the beginning of each day, we can know the goal of our sanctification, a complete renewing in the image of Christ, but we also have the right expectation that this is a process of more and more killing sin and acting in obedience for the glory of Christ. That's the pattern of sanctification. But finally, I think our greatest hope comes from the last thing that Paul tells us about sanctification in our passage, and it comes right at the end of our passage. The final thing he points to is the power of our sanctification. You see it in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul concludes this paragraph by declaring that God gives you his Holy Spirit. God, when we are in Christ, sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, to dwell in you. And I think perhaps we underestimate sometimes the power and the privilege that is ours if we are in Christ Jesus and he has sent the very Spirit of God to live in us. Think about it. Think, think back to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who made solar systems appear out of the darkness in the void at the Word of God. That's the power of God that is living in us if we have put our faith in Christ. Paul describes it this way in Romans 8. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead This is the spirit of resurrection power. If that spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What a great promise and encouragement. Or consider 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here, Paul declares, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, He's saying the image of Christ and its holiness. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then Paul adds, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is up to. God has sent his Spirit and he is now transforming us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. What a guarantee. What a guarantee and a hope thanks to God who dwells in us by his spirit. I love how um, William Tyndale, you may remember William Tyndale was uh, uh, one of the reformers uh, who was particularly involved in translating the Bible into English. Uh, He was as executed uh, for his work. But he said this, he said, where the spirit is, there it is always summer. For there will always be good fruits, that is good works that flow from his power. The Spirit of God is always at work in us, stirring up in us a deeper love for God, magnifying before us the beauty of Christ, making our hearts aware of where we still need to grow in his image and enabling us more and more to grow into that image. 
It is this fact that God has given you his Holy Spirit that should most encourage us, motivate us, give us hope in our pursuit of sanctification and holiness. God's own power in his spirit is doing it in us by his will. Well, as we come to the end, I wonder if we could just step back for a minute and consider again this main point. God's will for you is your holiness, your sanctification. And maybe we come to the end of this passage and, and we find it convicting. Maybe, maybe we've taken for granted the forgiveness of God and not cared about our holiness. Or, or maybe, maybe there are prominent sins in our hearts and our lives that we've just come to terms with and figured, well, this is just part of who I am. Or, or maybe we feel guilty about sin, but we, we still like it at some level and aren't sure where to go from there. Or maybe after two months of stay-at-home orders, we just have a general malaise about us and have a hard time being motivated to pursue these things. If that's where we are, if our hearts are convicted this morning, God gives us a clear path to hope and joy. And it's the other truth we must know in Jesus Christ, that he has shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. We have the offer, the opportunity through Christ of repentance and faith, which restore us and renew us to fellowship with Jesus. 1 John 1 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It reminds us that Jesus is an advocate for us with the Father whose blood is sufficient to cover all our sins. See, repentance is a beautiful gift. It's part of the regular pattern of the Christian life. It should mark our lives as believers who are walking along this path of sanctification. So if we're convicted by this passage this morning, know that we have hope through the blood of Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith. But more than anything, this passage in 1 Thessalonians, I think, should thrill us with its promise and its blessing. Do you see from this passage that the will of God for us is our sanctification? That the entire trinity is at work in us to bring about our holiness? See, God the Father has willed our holiness. God the Son has made it possible by his death and resurrection and sending of his Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is God's very power now actually at work in us. The whole trinity of God is at work to bring about our holiness. What could be more motivating to us in our desire for holiness, in our encouragement that God is at work to make us more like him? He will accomplish this. How much should we long to work with him by his power towards sanctification? I close with this story. The great Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander, tells the story of visiting Westminster Abbey in London. That was the site where the Westminster Confession was written. It's the namesake of our church. And he visited it, but he says he visited it, and they were restoring the abbey, and so it was covered from ground to top in scaffolding. You can't see much of the abbey with scaffolding covering it. But he says, he said, one could see, one could not see its true beauty, though one was aware that something of great significance was happening behind that scaffolding. And then Alexander goes on to make this comment. He says, the most significant thing happening in all of history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of God's people. The rest of history, that means everything that's happening in all of history from pandemics to to wars to the individual things in our lives, all of it 
Alexander says, is simply the scaffolding for the real work that's happening behind it. There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. And do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole of creation, here is my masterpiece? He will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. And in the forefront of it all will be Jesus himself who will come and say, here I am and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. That is the grand goal of all of history that God is at work in. If you have put your faith in Christ as your Savior this morning, God is at work in you, enabling you to gaze upon him with increasing joy and to live before him with ever-increasing obedience. May we put the same priority on our holiness that our God does, knowing he is at work to bring it about. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you, how it thrills our hearts to hear your will, which you are bringing about by your power in our lives, our holiness, our sanctification, our being remade into the image of Jesus Christ in righteousness and holiness. Father, that should encourage our hearts in our daily effort to kill sin and pursue righteousness and godliness. Father, I pray if our hearts are convicted this morning, if we need a prod from the word of God to put a priority on obedience to you and to your commandments, I pray that you would use your word to do that this morning. And I pray that, I pray that the weight of this prod would be met also with our comfort in the blood of Jesus Christ who covers our sins and leads us in repentance. Would you work this great desire for our holiness in us that it might match your great desire for holiness in your people. We pray this thanking you through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.